Okay, today my guest is Professor Daniel Shapiro. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Daniel as a person. Professor Shapiro is a thought leader and esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Daniel Shapiro is a professor of global business strategy at Simon Fraser University. He recently stepped down as the Dean of the BD School of Business. As an academic, he has published five books and monographs and over 80 scholarly articles on international business and strategy, corporate ownership and governance, foreign investment and MEs, industrial structure, and various aspects of the public policy. His research has been published in SMJ, AMJ, JIPS, Journal of Management Studies, and International Journal of Industrial Organization, among others. He received the 2004 Barclays Global Investors Canada Research Award for his paper with Peter Klein, and he received the TD Canada Trust Teaching Award twice, and in 2014, he was named the AIB Educator of the Year. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. First question, um, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, that, that is an interesting question because uh, I, I don't know what I wanted to become. I knew what I did not want to become. Uh, so my grandfather was actually, a, I, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, and my grandfather was a cattle dealer and he used to actually ride horses around on the prairies picking out cattle to buy. And I knew from my earliest age that what I did not want to be was a cowboy. <laughs> Which part is not good? The, the, uh, the horseback riding or the cow picking? All of it. All of it, all of it, all of it was no good. Um, the, 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 the horses, to my mind, were not fun to ride. And the uh, cows actually had an odor. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah. So I, I knew that. And, and, and in answer to your question uh, of, of what I did know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be, but I did follow uh, the dictum uh, that I think is shared by many ethnic minorities that uh, you, can, you, you have three choices of occupations. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, or a major disappointment. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, Calgary is an interesting place to, to grow up in. Uh, can you remember the first moment of awareness between domestic versus international? Well, um, for, there, there are two ways to answer that question. One is that Calgary, uh, it was the oil capital of Canada. And many of the corporations that uh, operated out of Calgary, oil companies, were American. So I understood American foreign investment from, from a very early age. And in addition, uh, Canada, when I was growing up, had, had quite high tariffs on imports. So everything was cheaper in the United States. So we used to go down to the States regularly and often, uh, both to vacation and to shop. <laughs> so I quickly um, uh, recognized that there were borders. It's actually a fascinating place. Uh, I've been there three times, uh, fascinated by this thing called Chinooks. Uh, all of a sudden, weather changes during totally. summer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Okay, uh, how did you choose academia and how did you choose to be an IB scholar uh, specifically? Well, going back to the original dictum, um, I actually never set out to be a scholar. I thought that uh, I, I studied economics as an undergrad and I did that because I thought it was a vehicle to get to law school, an effective vehicle to get to law school. And then I chose, uh, I was offered a, a scholarship to do an MA in economics. And I thought, well, if I can get to law school with a BA, it'll be much easier with an MA. So I'll just do the MA in economics just to get to law school. And um, it never occurred to me to be an academic. And in fact, um, I, I was probably actively not thinking about it. And one day I was strolling across the campus of the University of British Columbia where I was a graduate student. And I was walking along with one of the professors and he said something to me that has changed my life actually. He said, you know, you're smart enough to be an academic, but you won't be because you don't care enough. And I realized that he was right, that I just didn't, I was doing all this as a vehicle to get to law school. I didn't care enough. So I believe it or not, I dropped out of school and I spent six months deciding whether I cared or not. And I finally came to the conclusion that I did care. Luckily, Americans let you into a PhD program without a master's degree, because I did not have one. And I uh, chose to go to Cornell University for a PhD uh, once I decided that I cared. Interesting. No one said this thing before about caring part. This, this, this is fascinating. Uh, something uh, that is not on your CV that people might find interesting? Well, I, um, I have a great passion for cycling and um, I take every opportunity I can to cycle and have for, for many, many, many years. In 1980, for example, I, with some friends, chose, God knows why, we don't quite remember, uh, it, during the summer of the Moscow Olympics, we decided to cycle from Prague to Budapest <laughs> and then to Slovenia, um, where we went to Ljubljana. <laughs> I do this all the time. Is that the best place you've been to, cycling? Uh... Uh, well, I've also cycled through France uh, and I've cycled in China. But I, yeah, that was, I don't know if it was the best, it was certainly the most memorable, by far the most memorable. Because I can, I can promise you this is what, among the things that alerted me to institutional differences was just cycling uh, across those countries. Because remember this was before the Berlin Wall came down, they were all nominally communist countries, but the difference between Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Yugoslavia was quite pronounced. And it alerted me to the small nuances of institutional differences that actually matter. Interesting time frame, actually. You, you were there cycling before they became three, four different countries. Yeah. This is the time. Um, well, if you stopped today, uh, be, being a professor, what would you do? What's the second best career path for you? Well, I have two actually. So either um, I would study art history 
my wife is, is an art educator, an art historian. I have spent more time in museums than one could possibly imagine. And I have come to love listening to her tell me about art. And I wish I knew more about it. And the other thing is, and, and I, I seriously regret this, is um, I did not pay enough attention to, to sciences uh, in my education. And I, if I were starting again, I would definitely take many, many more courses in uh, particularly and probably biology. Interesting. Uh, what are you most passionate about? My what? Passion. What are you most passionate about? My passions? About? Yep. Oh, well, um, that's a good question. Uh, aside from cycling, uh, the, the question of caring, you know, do I care? Uh, what I arrived at in, in the, the months that I was contemplating what I cared about, it wasn't actually international business because I didn't know anything about international business. In fact, while I was thinking about this, there was no such thing as international business. What I cared about was the academic mission. And what I realized was that I wanted to be part of an institution that had existed for hundreds of years and that had such a profound impact on society at all levels. That's what, and it remains my passion, the academic mission, totally. Not, not publishing in IB journals, not uh, publishing another article, not teaching another course, but supporting the mission. If you didn't have family, if you didn't have ties to the current location, uh, no mortgage, no nothing, uh, what would be the ideal location, the ideal university, given that you got this pursuit or this passion for? Um... Well, that is so totally a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I obviously admire the obvious uh, places, uh, the Oxfords and the Cambridge, you know, the places where it kind of all started. But to tell you the truth, I also, have deep admiration for some of the new universities who have chosen to develop strategies centered around a, a very definite mission. So I have deep admiration, for example, for MIT in the United States, for Caltech in the United States, and for the University of Waterloo in Canada, where all of them have chosen to focus on technology in multidisciplinary ways with the clear understanding that they were fostering, furthering both the academic mission and the social mission to solve important problems. I still stand by that. Um, about research, uh, how do you explain the importance of your research to people who don't read your work regularly? And so it turns out that almost nobody reads my stuff regularly. <laughs> no, it's not true. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because I do have an answer to that question because it does arrive, arise uh, at dinner conversations with various people. And my answer is, is, is pretty simple. Um, I study why people, organizations, and countries uh, are different 
and uh, the ways in which they are different and why they are different. So it is about um, why one of my earliest uh, articles discovered that the performance of multinational firms in Canada was different between American and non-American firms. So why is it, what is it about the United States that would cause its multinationals to perform better than multinationals from other countries? What is it about state-owned enterprises that causes them to for, perform better or worse? What is it about the uh, legal systems of different countries that permeates their societies in such a way that firms take on different organizational forms and therefore different performance characteristics? Um, what is there about family ownership that distinguishes it from non-family ownership? So it is all about the kind of things that distinguish one organization in one country from another and the nuances that make them different. And then of course, there's the final question, which is, are there forces in play that lead to convergence or divergence? Do we expect, is there an optimal form of anything so that we expect some kind of divergence, not convergence rather? Interesting, actually, uh, you traveled a lot. You, you've been to, You've been on the administration side as well as the academic side, the, the actual research side. Um, have you ever thought of uh, comparing the, the type of universities across the globe to the mentality? And uh, uh, I want to tie it to the, the evolution of the field question, really. Yeah. Uh, because you, you've uh, covered a very long time span uh, in IB. Uh, what's the evolution? Uh, how do you see the evolution of the fields? And what did we? learn, what did we lose along the way? See, that's, that's a, a tough question for me to answer because the truth is um, that I don't, for certain, I did not consider myself an IB scholar until the early 1990s. And even then, I'm not sure that I consider myself an IB scholar. I write stuff that is of interest to IB scholars. I read stuff that IB scholars write and take it seriously. But I started out basically as someone interested in comparative economic systems and economic development, which I think is pretty common for some of the early people in IB my age. But interestingly in Canada at the time, if you joined an econ department, you were discouraged actively from publishing in management journals. They were seen as inferior and not a good route to tenure. So I was diverted away from, from much IB thinking um, to publish in more standard IO, uh, uh, econ journals, particularly industrial economics. But this also, because I had this consistent passion for understanding why things were different across countries, um, I took this sort of industrial organization approach to uh, IB, let's call it, which is really where Steve Heimer started and where Richard Caves picked up. Uh, and I was part of that. And the understanding of how that approach applies uh, in a comparative sense was part of what I always did. So uh, I think one of the things we, we have to 
pay attention to moving forward is uh, that school of thought, I think had some important uh, insights that have become somewhat lost. For example, uh, if you look at the literature on entry and exit barriers to which I contributed as an, as an industrial organization <laughs> economist, you'll see that the understanding of barriers to entry and exit are organized around the idea of sunk costs. Sunk costs are organized around the idea of often of intangible assets. So you can immediately see the connection between barriers to entry and exit and the theory of the multinational corporation as it evolved. So the argument that, for example, barriers to entry and exit are symmetrical may not hold in the same way for foreign firms uh, who view sunk costs in a different way. So interestingly, if you take the IO approach, you don't end up talking about the liability of foreignness, you actually end up talking about the advantages of foreignness. And so I think that's, a, that's a, a, an important uh, kind of, a, of an approach. So actually, when you were talking, I, I, was, uh, I was reminded of Eleanor Wesney's interview and she was very clear, very clear on uh, interdisciplinary research versus multidisciplinary research. And you're coming from the old school uh, econ background. I mean, you're, you're giving the, uh, the major foundations in economics uh, is the foundation. Yes, but having said that, I agree with her completely um, with, with the view of multidisciplinarity because um, uh, I, I think that moving forward, we will have to, uh, I think the conception that we have, well, let me put this another way. I think we moved from the, the industrial organization approach, which focused probably exclusively and too much on industries to the uh, MNC approach, which fo focused probably too much on the multinational corporation as the relevant entity. Along the way, what we lost, I think, were notions of polycentric governance arising from very sophisticated relations between states and firms, the kind of thing that Susan Strange uh, and, and Ray Vernon talked about. We lost, I think, the understanding of how technological change uh, and its diffusion translates across institutional environments. Uh, which I, I think is sort of a separate, it's a separate but connected field. And I think we, we, we do have to get back to thinking more uh, about the disciplines that connect us both to polycentric governance which, and to uh, technological uh, diffusion. And along the way, I would just add that uh, one of the things that I think we have to think about a lot more moving forward is the importance of non-state and non-firm uh, actors, that is, uh, broadly speaking, NGOs and non-state, non non-firm actors, and the role of collective action in the world. If I could just preach for a moment, um, we are embarking on a decade or decades where the climate crisis is going to be uh, 
ever more significant and ever more important. And I do not believe that as a discipline, we are well equipped to analyze it uh, using the tools we currently have. Oh, uh, I just reviewed a paper on the argument was uh, some things need to be uh, weighed against how important they are. And then the argument was also about how urgent things were, urgency and importance, right? And if you could rank these important uh, exogenous shocks, climate crisis, immigration, uh, nationalism, populism, um, activism. Yeah. What's the important uh, or, or urgency that, that you would? I think I, I kind of answered that question. I'm, I'm, I'm not being disrespectful at saying that, but um, to me, all of the things you've mentioned are important. But climate change, I think, both trumps them all. I know you told me not to talk about Trump. Um, <laughs> climate change trumps them all, but also subsumes them all. Because what we are going to have in order to solve the climate crisis, we are going to have to come to terms with migration issues. We're going to have to come to terms with income inequalities and disparities and mass poverty. We're going to have to come to terms with how the technology diffuses across borders. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how a lot of this stuff comes back. Uh, many, many years ago, I wrote an article. Canada experimented with, uh, I think 15 years of compulsory licensing for pharmaceuticals and then abandoned it. And so, we wrote a kind of an event study that looked at the stock market reaction uh, to MNCs, both when compulsory licensing was imposed and when it was taken off. And interesting when it, interestingly, um, when it was imposed, stock market didn't respond at all. When it was taken off, the stock market uh, increased the value of those companies. So ex ante, uh, people are not sure that having compulsory licensing is the, wrong, is the wrong thing to do, including stock markets. And so I think this is something that we have to think very carefully about because the issue of compulsory licensing of drugs and vaccines is by multinationals and the, the appropriate response of states to them is going to be high on the, the agenda. In political science, we've got this concept called Granger causality. And then yeah. uh, I mean, your approach to climate crisis and the importance and the urgency that you place on this is quite interesting. Uh, I haven't thought about it this way, but uh, quite interesting take. Um, about, uh, the, for the sake of time, about the advice uh, portion, uh, who had the most influence on you when you were going through the program? Well, Aside from the, um, <laughs> the man whose name was William Jaffe, by the way, um, who told me that I didn't have what it takes because I didn't care enough uh, and caused me to think very carefully about what caring meant. Um, I was deeply influenced by, I, I went to Cornell because there was a guy there called Yaroslav Vanyak, who had been one of the primary trade theorists in the world 
and had suddenly switched over to this sort of in retrospect kind of crazy view that the world would be a better place if all enterprises were uh, owned and managed by workers. And he actually redid the entire corpus of economic theory. I mean, the entire corpus mathematically substituting the notion that firms maximize profits with one that they maximize income per worker uh, and showed that it ended up with a Pareto optimal outcome. Now this was not itself, I mean, it was monumental in its grandeur, but it, he alerted me to the notion that ownership mattered, that, that the structure of societies mattered that uh, there could be differences both between and, and across societies in how uh, even small things like firm ownership was organized. And that has influenced me um, forever, actually. Interesting. Actually, something you said about Cornell uh, just struck me. Uh, 1950s, 1960s, uh, that was an experiment in Cornell. They actually tried to do a basket of currencies for the US markets, uh, it would be replacement of, actually the, the earliest version of a Euro was actually experimented in the United States in Cornell. Really? Uh, I, see, um, I didn't know that. And when you talked about your trade theorist, uh, employee owned uh, economic system, uh, so there was this huge uh, dynamism around an alternative way of thinking uh, interesting. You know, I, I, and I just want to pick up on that because I know others in, in this series have, have mentioned it, but um, I, there was a, a, a book written out of print, uh, edited by Charlie Kindleberger, called The Multinational Corporation in the 1980s, MIT Press, in which I had an article. But if you read that book, this is published in 1983. So it was a result of a conference in 1981, something like that. It's really interesting that the discussion of the multinational corporation in the 1980s contained almost no firm specific discussions. It was all about the role of the state, the role of finance. The role, it, was, uh, it was actually, it, it's actually quite illuminating and um, to, to, to see it that way. And um, it, it only encourages me to, to think more carefully about multidisciplinarity and what that means. Interesting. When you uh, come across junior faculty or uh, PhD students, what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, that, that they make and you say like, do this, don't do that? Well, you know, it, it, this is a tough question because um, the things that I think are mistakes are things that I can say with the privilege of hindsight, experience, and tenure. And so, you know, if my advice going forward was to follow what I believe is the right thing to do, which is take on issues that are important to the world, not that are important to academic journals, uh, we would lose a lot of people, they wouldn't get tenure. So I, I try to tread this line between impressing on people that they have to earn their stripes. They have to, 
you know, get their credentials. They have to learn how to publish uh, in whatever way is the dominant mode at the time. But that all the while they should be thinking hard about what issues are going to matter, not to the journals, but to society and to, to the world that we live in. I mean, I think we are approaching, I don't wanna sound dire about this, but we are approaching a moment where uh, that kind of thinking is gonna be required a lot. So, um, it, it's a fire thinking. I mean, I, I can't see what you're uh, saying, but obviously pre-tenure and after tenure, uh, maybe uh, I'll follow up with that one. If that, if that is the situation before tenure, what's the situation for scholars in mid-careers mid uh, after tenure, right after tenure? I, I strongly believe that, uh, okay, I, I, I strongly believe, but I have always been guided by the principle that one should take on issues that are of relevance to either the community in which you live or the entire world or both. So for example, I got diverted early in my career to long studies of the returns to language in Quebec because language issues were a huge issue in Quebec and nobody quite knew what the value of bilingualism was and whether it was, uh, whether uh, people whose mother tongue was English benefited from being bilingual more than people whose mother tongue was French. We answered all those questions and it, those articles are cited to this day, nothing to do with international business, but it was really relevant to that community. When I moved to Vancouver, one of the things I discovered, which I didn't actually know, was that Vancouver is a mining center. And mining is probably one of those areas that IB scholars and everybody just ignores, like that's something else altogether. So I started to investigate and do research on the mining sector because it was so important to the local community. And that actually has, has, has continued. So we just had a paper in SMJ uh, looking at uh, uh, location of mining companies or mining sites and whether it matters whether they're located near sustainable water sources or not. We're working on another one which looks at how communities grant social licenses to operate to mining companies across the world and why there are differences in them. So I was led to this whole mining thing just because I lived in Vancouver. Uh, and because it was important to this community. So I, I think that's, uh, it gives me a lot of satisfaction to know that I have helped understand a problem that the community here uh, deems important. Same thing and with language. You're emphasizing importance of context and yes. importance of the uh, regional context even, even further. This is... Uh, this well, it, it's sort of a reiteration of my point, which is that, uh, yes, it is, it is about context, which is, you've actually summarized it very nicely. I mean, I guess my entire life is about context uh, and my research and everything about it. But uh, this notion that when you get tenure, you are given the privilege to choose of the contexts that matter. And I am only saying that 
choosing contexts only based on definitions of gaps in the literature provided in academic journals is necessary, but it is far, far from sufficient. I want to ask you a question. I've never asked anyone about sabbaticals. Uh, what's your take on it? What, what's your uh, evaluation of the benefit of sabbaticals that are like three months, six months versus? You know, I actually cannot, I, I don't have an, an answer uh, to that question. I am observing, this is what I am observing, is that younger scholars seem much more stressed than I was and that my colleagues were at the time. And I'm finding that they are actually seeking out, um, so there's two issues really that have arisen because of this. One of them is the increasing number of women in, in the profession means that sabbaticals and maternity leave mean sort of different things than they used to. And we don't have, women understand in particular, I think, that taking uh, too much time away from work can damage their careers. This is wrong. I mean, they're right to believe it. What's wrong is that it's true. Um, and this colors the way they organize sabbaticals. They tend to make them shorter. And I think this has happened to male colleagues to some degree as well, where the pressures of, of, of uh, publishing uh, and, and having families and so forth just seem greater on them than, than uh, on others. And so I am observing, I'm, so I'm not claiming that shorter sabbaticals are better. I'm observing, I think that there's a trend towards them. This was fascinating. Thank you so much. What's the question I should have asked you about Evans? Ah, um, the question you, you should have asked me is, um, um, well, there are two actually. One of them is, um, uh, why is it that my two children are both academics um, and what led them to become academics? Um, and the answer to that, I believe, is my passion for bicycling meant that I used to spend a lot of time on my bicycle claiming I was thinking. Um, and it's true that I was. So I used to frame papers, I used to get ideas, I would bicycling focused my mind and I cycle alone, I don't cycle in groups. So I used to do this. So their idea of academia is that you get to spend a lot of time on your bicycle. And so um, that you didn't ask me about bicycling in academia. The other thing you didn't ask me is about why is the number of co-authors increasing over time? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I think it, if, if you look at the data, I'm sure you will find that the number of co-authors increase, has increased over time. Now, I, I link this to my children who are both scientists and publish articles which have a million names on them. And everybody understands what the contribution of all those people was. And they also understand most importantly that uh, creativity is a collective endeavor. So that the idea that one person has an idea and writes it down is just foreign to the sciences. I think it's becoming more and more foreign to the social sciences. 
And the idea of how to work collectively uh, in larger groups to enhance creativity and relevance, uh, I think is a really interesting question. Maybe in a different context, the social science is going to evolve into having multiple uh, co-authors. And right now it is five or six people publishing in GIPS. It is not the model that you're talking about. To, to publish oh, yeah. in science, you need a thousand people <laughs> to write six pages. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much uh, for, for this uh, very interesting interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.